You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish. And finally, we are back for the long-awaited Q4 and Q1 financial review of the Big Five MSOs. Joining us, as usual, is a man who needs no introduction, someone who is always there to give his two cents and analysis to the industry, the one and only Nick Gastovich, a.k.a. Canavestments. Welcome back, sir. Manish, my friend, good to be back on. It's been a while. Crazy to think we're almost halfway through 2023. It's been almost six months since we last chatted, if you can believe it. Wow. Time flies. Time flies. Um, Actually, I was listening to our last recording in preparation for this, and we had recorded on December 11th, which was the, you know, the ups and downs of the, of the safe banking, um, uh, you know, will they, won't they? Um, and, and I think right before the prices truly collapsed uh, and have never really recovered. So it's interesting to be revisiting this financial analysis. Um, and, you know, one of the themes I want to talk about today, Nick, is really, you know, you, I know you do your review and you post it on Twitter and on Reddit. Um, and if people aren't following you, they really should be just to get a quick look through when you, you know when the financials first come up. But what's interesting to me now is how much the earnings release can vary from the actual filing, right? And um, you know, to be frank, if it wasn't for us doing these reviews, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to go back and actually do the analysis on the filings, right? When the earnings come out, you know, like everyone else, you kind of look at the release and, and try to figure out if it's good or bad. But um, that'll be a key thing that we dig into today is how some companies um, are sort of presenting their numbers uh, too optimistically in the in the release. And then when you go through the filings, it's actually worse than it looks. Um, so that's something I want to point out as we go through our review today. Yeah, de- de- definitely something I noticed as well is especially when you when you see companies quarter to quarter report different things and highlight different elements, you, you kind of have to take a closer look and realize what's behind the curtain because yeah i mean obviously a company's going to try to put their best foot forward but diving deep into the numbers and the actual financials remains as important as ever yeah and one thing we talked about last episode which i think has has really borne out over the last six months is the we talked about the pack the big five pack separating itself and the separation was going to be you know, based on operational prowess and um, also capital stack. So if you break that down, you know, you've got to be a good operator. You've got to have the right footprint and be in the right states. That's more important than ever. But then the last point is your capital structure has to be right. So if you're carrying too much debt, that is starting to become an issue. Um, And we're going to point that out as we go through the review. Uh, Overall, Nick, I'm curious how you felt about the results, uh, broadly speaking, from Q4 and Q1. Yeah, I mean, as always, there's 
pretty big variances company to company. But, you know, I'd say uh, uh, overall, you know, I think Q4 was definitely a, a messy quarter for almost everyone. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of companies take impairments and, and write downs in Q4, which makes the net losses and, and EPS reports look quite bad. Um, and then there tends to be just a lot of noise around kind of like the year end financials. Um, and then moving into Q1, you, you tend to get a cleaner look uh, when, when you look at the numbers and it, it gives you an idea of, you know, how the companies are evolving. And, you know, I think Q1 especially, not not for every company, but we at least started to see some of the efforts made, you know, I'd say late 2022 and have continued into 2023 of the, you know, cost cutting measures, the focus mm-hmm. on cash flow, the focus on profitability. And, mm-hmm. you know, some companies made more progress than others, but I, I think that was kind of the overwhelming theme that I saw here in Q1 is, you know, you're starting to see those those efforts come through in the numbers. And, uh, you know, given top line growth seems has been limited the past few quarters and, you know, looks to be somewhat limited looking out to this year as a whole, that, that focus on profitability and cash flow is important. And, you know, I think it was helpful to see that that progress was being made from some companies. And just to add on to that, I think you're seeing SGA benefits. Um, there's some companies are getting the benefit of Connecticut and Rhode Island, right? So GTI is getting Rhode Island, uh, but uh, also getting Connecticut. Verano and Creoleaf also getting the benefit of Connecticut. Trueleaf getting probably a very small benefit in Connecticut. Um, and and talking about footprint, kind of looking into 23, uh, it does look like Maryland will actually go uh, recreational on July 1st. And that's going to be really beneficial to the entire industry. Uh, almost every MSO on this list has is at the cap or near the cap in Maryland. Uh, I think TrueLeave is just is close to the cap, not quite there. Cresco, big, big hole um, in, in Maryland, right? But just the fact that Maryland will be turning over in Q3, that will be positive. Q4 and Q1 are actually usually the weakest quarters seasonally, um, except in states like Arizona and Florida. Uh, but you know, in Q2, you have 420, you have the weather getting warmer. Q3 is summertime. So those are typically your, your most uh, beneficial months from a seasonal perspective, right? So I think as we go through, you're going to see that with some companies, there was, there was actually a very clean Q1. Uh, and and actually gave me some hope. Um, with other companies, I think it really pointed to warning signs and really pointed to the fact that there's trouble on the horizon for a couple of these companies. And so the the separation between these companies um, has never been more relevant, in my opinion. Also, what was interesting to me is that the best companies on this list were kind of trading in the same EBITDA range of something like six to seven, whereas the weaker companies were actually trading uh, at a higher EBITDA. So like they were more expensive. Now, you know, their their absolute equity value or their absolute market cap was lower, um, but, you know, their earnings were also an issue, which is, which is why their uh, multiple um, has increased so much. So I thought that was really interesting, Nick. And I, and I don't know if that's just from, you know, the market not necessarily caring about, you know, what the multiple is, or, um, you know, I'm not really sure why that is, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, that was definitely something I noticed as well. And yeah, like you said, I think it you know largely stems from just the EBITDA estimates coming down, looking out, you know, this year and next and the, the market just not actively responding to that that change. And 
ultimately pricing some of these companies who are performing worse, you know, higher than than, than the more profitable companies. Definitely an interesting dynamic and, you know, kind of a sign that I think we've been aware of for a while is that ultimately this industry is widely moving as one and simply contingent upon some sort of federal movement as opposed to, uh, you know, individual variances between companies. Yeah. And look, I mean, if that is the case, then there's opportunity in that, right? There's a mispricing in there. And at the very least, I don't think you want to be stuck holding weaker, more expensive names when you could be migrating over to stronger names, which are cheaper, right? So um, that's definitely an opportunity. So look, let's get right into it. Let's kick it off. And uh, the first name on the list today, which which was uh, also the first name on the list last time around, is Cresco Labs. And I think this is the first time in a while, Nick, that I really took a look at Cresco just on its own. And, and as a reminder, what we said you know, six months ago and even before that was that there really was no rush to get in and be an investor in Cresco because although Cresco has a lot of things to like about it as a company, operationally, from a product and brand perspective, I absolutely love what they do. Uh, I think they've got big holes in the footprint. Um, they have, um, from a financial perspective, uh, you, you know, financially they've been they've been a lot weaker than their peers. Uh, and the Columbia Care acquisition, which seemed to be a good deal and seemed to be a good fit, um, had a very long and uncertain uh, time frame. And this deal was announced over a year ago. It uh, the outside date right now is June thirtieth, so it'll be basically a month from today. We really have no idea what's going to happen come June thirtieth. Are they going to drop the deal? Are they going to renegotiate the deal and extend the deal? Can they even close the deal June thirtieth if everything else is simpatico? Right. So I think uh, the idea that we had for the last few quarters of basically, you know, waiting and seeing on this name was absolutely the right approach. Yeah, agree there, and I think you hit on the the main concern points. Uh, n- number one, the you know the footprint just missing some of those key growth states, and you know I, I think everyone would have pointed to the Columbia Care deal, saying like, "Hey, that's clearly going to shore up some of those missing points," which was you know a fair argument. But but like you said, and, and you know I pointed this out on on Twitter as well that I think in this last conference call, if you if you really listen to Charlie's tone. Uh, about, you know, got, he got quite a few questions about the upcoming merger. It was definitely the most hesitation I've seen, uh, you know, since the deal was first announced. Like, I, I don't think that I'm not jumping to the conclusion. That means it's not going through, but he definitely gave more qualifiers than ever saying, you know, we need the the economics to work. We need, you know, these asset sales to go through. And that, you know, that fundamentally seems the, to be the most important thing is, you know, they announced the deal with, with P. Diddy, but they still have the Ohio uh, licenses and then the, the Florida license to sell. And unfortunately, we're, we're really at just a terrible time to be to, to be marketing these assets. Like if you look at Florida, they're about to issue a, a new set of licenses. Um, and, and then just overall, there's, you know, not a lot of companies with cash out there, which is what, what the combined company would need to pay down their debt. So, so all in all, there's, you know, probably very few buyers and, um, you know, market prices have just come down so much that that uh, challenges, you know, the, the ultimate amount that they can get on the sales and, 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 you know, really serve the need of paying down the combined company's debt. Because um, that, you know, that that is, in my mind, the, the biggest hindrance to, you know, reaching any real profitability for Cresco right now and for mm-hmm. clients. 
there. I mean, both companies have struggled with cash flow, have struggled with margins, and, and you know, a combined very heavy debt load is is definitely part of that. Um, so finding price for the asset sales was key. Yeah, and and that was actually something Charlie pointed out on the call as well was that it's p- part of making you know having it make sense is the fact that when you combine the debt um, that the absolute amount of debt has to make sense in today's market. Like, yes, we can adjust um, the uh, ratio, the price ratio, and we can renegotiate the deal. And, and let's be really clear. Charlie on that call uh, is this is this is actual 3D chess being played. So just as I'm sure a lot of people were listening to that call and hanging on his every word about the transaction, you better believe that Nick Vita and his team and all of those investors were listening to that call with the same bated breath wondering, you know, what Charlie was going to say. So this is gamesmanship and negotiation, uh, but it's coming from a very real place of they are probably battling it out with uh, with Columbia Care right now saying, look, we cannot do this deal as is currently prescribed. So either we're cutting the exchange ratio considerably um, and even then, right, that might still not get it done. There might still be the issue of um, can we can we support this amount of debt? Can we get the debt holders on side? Which I'm, I'm sure they can from the Columbia, uh, Columbia Care side. Um, but can they get the Cresco debt holders on side? Can they arrange these closings? Like this is, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, but that being said, people who are kind of saying, "Look, they should walk away from this." You know, um, it, to be clear, I think Columbia Care needs the deal more than Cresco does. But I do think after reviewing these results. Cresco really does need the deal. So, uh, Nick, I'll let you kick off the results. Sure. So, yeah, looking at uh, top line revenue, Q4 came in at you know just under 200 million, and then here in Q1 landed at 194 million. Uh, so, this was actually the fourth straight quarter uh, of declining revenue. You know, mm-hmm. going back to Q2 2022, we were at 218 million. Um, you know, so when we spoke, speak, are speaking to the lack of exposure to key states, you know, in particular in New Jersey, uh, we, we've seen Cresco uh, just decline uh, for four straight quarters now. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a challenge for the company. So, you know, areas of focus for them has, has definitely been Florida. Uh, they, they opened eight new stores here in Q1 and, you know, did quite a few store openings last year. I think they're up to 29 total now. Um, they continue to open a, a handful of stores in, in Pennsylvania, um, but for the most part, the, the, the footprint is like largely built out. Um, so then when you look at like the substance of the revenue, they obviously remain a, a wholesale leader uh, nationwide, um, which unfortunately is a, you know, there's a, there's a good side to it, but also a bad side to it, especially in this market when uh, wholesale opportunities are limited and pricing has come down so much. Um, so they still noted a, a leading CPG share in Illinois, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and they noted reaching number five in Michigan. Um, but obviously, there, there, there's challenges to not being exposed to markets like New Jersey and, and Connecticut and driving the top line. Yeah, and uh, that wholesale uh, share, I mean, okay, great. I think it does show that they're doing something right on the product side. But I mean, especially in Michigan, as an example, uh, you know, you're you're not vertical. Um, not that maybe you even want to be vertical in Michigan, but uh, so so sure, your products are getting out there, they're getting acceptance. You know, they're well liked, but you're still eating it on the price. 
right? You're, it's still a it's still a difficult margin business to sustain. Yeah, absolutely, and you know we we see that pretty clearly in the numbers. Adjusted EBITDA essentially flat Q four and Q one. Q4 was 30.5 million and then down slightly to 29.3 million in Q1, which is a margin of just 15%, you know, so of, of the big five here, that's by far the lowest, um, you know, five points below uh, where, where Cureleaf is and, and, you know, almost half of what uh, GTI and Trulieve and, and Verano are, are doing. So um, clearly that, that, yeah, that wholesale focus, especially in a, in tough markets is, is hampering profits. Uh, yeah. So, so, so just, sorry, just to talk about that EBITDA, I mean, the EBITDA has really collapsed, right? I mean, if you, if you look at the company year over year, I, I mean, I think the year over year comparison on these financials is really ugly, right? I mean, they were doing uh, about 214. So, so 20 million more on the top line a year ago than they are today um, with, you know, more or less the same costs, uh, they've cut a little bit on the SGNA, which is nice, but they had you know twenty million income from operations a year ago, and they had three million this year. Now that doesn't include you know your depreciation and and those kind of addbacks, but uh, that's basically the story of where all their cash flow has gone. Just the compression of revenue uh, has has really hurt them over the last year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and yeah, like you said, they they have been able to cut expenses a a, a bit, and you know that's absolutely necessary in this market. It dropped uh, from about uh, ninety point five million in in Q four down to eighty two point three million Q, in Q one here, which is about you know forty two percent of of revenue. Um, so not a terrible number, but still elevated. And uh, when when you have low lower gross margins, it ultimately ends up in a, a less profitable business. Mm-hmm. Um, t- turning to, to cash flow, th- this was an interesting one in, in the quarter. Um, and it's, you know, I think a good lesson in what, why you really need to uh, teach yourself how to understand a, a cash flow statement, because, you know, on the surface, it, it, it actually looks, you know, o- okay. They, they did pretty steady 3.6 million in, in Q4 of positive OCF and then 3.3 million here in Q1. Uh, and then diving further into it, you know, you can, you know, I often do a analysis of tax adjusted cash flow. Yep. Uh, obviously, income tax payments are something that will always come due. So I think it's always a, you know, a good stat to to factor in and, and adjust for. And mm-hmm. Cresco actually here in, in Q1 paid down their taxes beyond what was accrued in the quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, so tax adjusted operational cash flow is closer to 17 million, you know, which is, uh, you know, a good number on the surface, but then if you again look look at the cash flow statement, you'll see they also saw a, accounts payable and accrued liabilities go up by twenty million. Uh, so, so it's just one of those things where you got to look at the cash flow statement in totality and realize that you know if cash flow is driven solely by not paying certain bills, you you kind of need to adjust for that. So you know, I would say break even on OCF is probably like a, a better analysis of, of what they're able to do in Q1. Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out because that was actually the same note I made is that you're, you're plus, you know, three, three-ish million in OCF and that's what they report in their ER. But then it's only when you see the filings because they don't include a breakdown of OCF in their in their release. Only when you see the filings do you get to the truth of the matter, right? So on the one hand, you go, oh, wow, they actually paid about $15 million of back taxes. 
So if you add that to their roughly 17 million of Q1 taxes, you go, they paid like 32 million of taxes, which they um, mentioned, by the way, in, in the ER. So they said, hey, we, we were positive 3 million and we paid 32 million of taxes. You go, wow, that's pretty damn good, right? So if you normalize that, you go, hey, they were plus 18 million in Q1 for OCF. But to Nick's point, you know, they've they figured out that investors just adjust for the taxes now. Well, the accounts payable ballooned by 20 million. The accounts receivable, they got a benefit of almost 4 million. So they had a $24 million swing just from AP and AR with basically no inventory change. So from my looking at it, you're somewhere from negative six to zero on the OCF. There's always some adjustments for AP and AR, so it's not fair to like totally penalize them. Uh, But that's not great to start with. On top of that, $20 million went out the door for CapEx, right? That's below the line, but 20 million bucks, that's a lot of dough. Um, and it's, it's, I'm kind of curious where they invested it because I don't know what state is really rolling over. Now, to give these guys some credit, they did open eight stores, most of them in Florida and I think one in PA. So they are definitely carrying some extra cost from an operational standpoint because you're staffing up those stores, but you're not, you know, you're, they're just turning online in the quarter, right? So um, there is probably a drag and there's probably a bump they're going to get on the revenue side starting in Q2. Uh, but uh, it's, this is not a not a good sign, right? Um, you're you're let's say best case n- neutral on your OCF. You're minus twenty million on your capex, and then a line that I think almost everybody misses on the financing side. Cresco had twelve million dollars of payments to limited liability unit holders. So what is this? We actually covered this a year ago when we looked at this. This is an old structure that they have where they have people who hold units, quote unquote, not shareholders, and they have to pay taxes on their behalf. So this 12 million bucks, um, I think it's only once a year, but um, it is a real hit to cash flow. So despite you know the, the roughly neutral OCF, there was a $32 million cash burn in this quarter, right? That is not pretty. Um, and for a company that's now down to, uh, I think it's 88 million of, of cash, um, that's not a good sign. Also, when you look at their debt, they have to keep a minimum of $50 million of cash at all times to not be in default on the debt. So Nick, when I looked at this, I, I said, man, Cresco's got a problem here. They have a very serious cash flow issue. Um, and uh, it's going to be really, really important for them to chart some kind of path forward. And if it's not Columbia Care, it's probably going to be some other kind of M&A. And, and I could, you know, if, if I'm going to throw a little speculation out there, I bet you that they're looking at Cansortium. Um, there was there was kind of rumors pre-Columbia Care that they had a deal that fell apart with Cansortium. Uh, well, the Cansortium stock has absolutely collapsed a fraction of what it used to be. Um, I know because I'm a shareholder, it's been very painful. Uh, but it would allow them to supercharge Florida, put on Pennsylvania and get Texas. Now, I don't think anyone would cut a deal with Consortium until we see in the next few months if they issue more Texas licenses, because that would dilute the value of Texas. Uh, but Columbia, uh, sorry, Cresco's got a problem on its own here. They're, the numbers are clearly telling you um, that that there are issues that need to be sorted out here. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think you're speaking to the problem perfectly. And, you know, they did provide some, uh, a little bit of guidance on some of that, that cash flow expectations. Um, so most of that Q1, the 20.5 million in CapEx spend was, was to finishing up the New York facility, which is like a ground up indoor facility. And they said that will uh, wind down in, into Q2 and then Q3 and Q4 even less and less. So like we will see lower burn coming from the CapEx side of the business. But like you said, if you can, if you're break even on operational cash flow, when you adjust for everything properly, you know, any amount of CapEx is, is ultimately going to lower that cash position and, uh, you know, run into that, uh, that $50 million minimum requirement. Uh, I mean, I mean, also Nick, to your, to, to that point, like, is that where you want to be spending your money right now? New York? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really. Are, are you feeling lucky? Yeah. I mean, that's tough. Like, I mean, what do we have like 12 or 15 stores open today and, you know, a, a, a market that is clearly hostile towards MSO involvement. You know, I think we had, you could call it minor progress with the rules that came out again. And, you know, it, it at least allows for the MSOs to participate in the wholesale market. It looks like in Q4 um, and then they can open up, you know, one store to start, but they obviously have to pay these huge cash fees in order to, in order to enter. And, you know, it, it begs the question, if there's 15 stores, do you even want to participate in the wholesale market? Uh, very, very questionable decision. I mean, I get it from being a wholesaler and, you know, New York's an important state culturally, but uh, to your point, it's money out the door for the CapEx, money out the door if you want to convert to AU. I really wouldn't be spending a penny in New York, given how tight, you know, and how important cash is. Um, but let's see. So so here's the footprint issue for Cresco right now. Illinois, prices are are getting cut. So Illinois has been one of the markets that's been kind of keeping people afloat as it hasn't been compressing as much. But you look at Cresco's website today, you can get a Cresco 8th in a Sunnyside store for sub $40. Right? It used to be 55 maybe 50 with discounts. Okay? So that's not great, right? And And Missouri coming online has really hurt Illinois in the last few months. Pennsylvania, really no legalization in sight there. Maryland, you know, the bright spot for the industry. Cresco has no dispensaries, no grow. You know, they are one of the largest wholesalers in the States because of their concentrates and their processing license. Um, but that is a huge hole in their footprint. And so when you fast forward to Q3 and Q4 and, you know, Trulieve and uh, Cura and Verano and GTI are feeling the love from Maryland, uh, Cresco is going to be out in the cold. So that's not good. Ohio is one of the few bright spots where you have a gubernatorial election coming towards the end of the year and and uh, cannabis should be on the ballot if they get the signatures, which I'm sure they will. That That's one of the only benefits, right? And they won't feel the benefit of that until sometime probably next year. Um, Florida, you're rapidly expanding your store count, which is good. Um, but, you know, that's a super competitive market as well, right? So I, I just, when I look forward here, I go, where is the profitability going to come from, right? If you annualize the uh, really terrible EBITDA from this quarter, you know, you're getting 120 million, right? Maybe 150 if we give them the benefit of the doubt that they're carrying a bunch of, you know, expenses from these stores that are opening. 150 million of EBITDA is, is really weak. And that obviously does not include, you know, the interest and all that kind of stuff they have to pay, right? So, 
I mean, just looking at the numbers here, you know, the debt load on Cresco is pretty high when you add everything in. Uh, you've got roughly $470 million of debt. You got 75 million bucks of accrued liabilities. You got your accounts payable, your short-term borrowing, your taxes. So, you know, I give them a little bit of credit for cash and I get about $650 million of debt. Um, you know, the, the stock price today, let's say it hovers between a buck fifty and $2 US. You've got 425 million shares that are actually in the money. I've, I've took out about 25 million shares of uh, warrants that are that are decently out of the money. So you get an equity value between 650 and 850 million. Um, and then you add on the debt to that. So you're getting between roughly one three and one five in terms of your EV. And at your 150 million um, EBITDA, you're eight and a half to 10 times your value, right? Uh, that is, as you're going to see as we're going forward, one of the least attractive um, offerings of all of the MSOs out here. And it doesn't account for all the risk that you're getting right now with this company. Yep. Yep. I mean, you have more profitable cash flowing companies trading at, you know, uh, a lower multiple. And, you know, it's hard to see why you put your money towards Cresco right now. Yeah. And I, what I found consistently is something like six to seven times EBITDA is, is kind of where um, a couple of the better companies are trading, which we'll get into. So, you know, eight and a half to 10, you're a couple of turns higher here on Cresco. Um, and, uh, and, and also, you know, 150 million of EBITDA, I'm giving them some credit here, right? For, for their EBITDA increasing. Now, I also said, okay, listen, if you want to give them the real benefit of the doubt and say that maybe they're going to hit 200, you know, at some point in the future, you're still only six and a half to seven and a half times their current value. So I think you got a real problem here. Um, and, uh, and I just don't see a way out of it with their current footprint. Another small point, you know, you look at the Ascend Maryland deal where Ascend bought four dispensaries in Maryland for, I think it was roughly 18 million, um, mostly cash, but a decent chunk of stock. That deal would have been perfect for Cresco. But this limbo that they're in with Columbia Care precluded them from being able to do that deal, right? So that's the kind of deal that, um, you know, if they had done that deal, you could say, look, at least they're going to have this big tailwind come July 1st, right? They don't have that. So I think they need Columbia Care. Um, I think they're definitely angling for a big reduction in pricing. Um, but if that deal doesn't happen, I would expect them to announce another deal pretty quickly after because something's got to change here. Yep. Yep. No, I think you spoke to it well. And yeah, it's the fundamental issue I have is, you know, the Columbia Care deal goes through, it's it's messy, <laughs> uh, what it looks like on the other side. And if it doesn't go through, you know, we've done a good review of what it looks like under the status quo. Um, so it's tough to see a, a good option for them right now. Okay, Nick. So moving on, next on our list, list is Cura Leaf Holdings. And uh, I would say this was a pretty interesting quarter for Curaleaf, uh, especially in New Jersey, wouldn't you say, Nick? Yeah, yeah. I mean, qu quite the up and down for them. And, you know, it went from terror to, to at least some success. And, uh, you know, I think it was an interesting dynamic to, to watch uh, the investor community react. So, look, if, if I have a bone to pick with Curaleaf overall, um, I mean, for a long time, they've just traded at a huge premium. Part of that's been corrected now. Uh, but it's just a fact that the company always seems to be just a little bit behind from an operational perspective. 
And I think this New Jersey thing was a great example of that. Now, like to be fair to them, clearly the regulators in New Jersey uh, have it out for the MSOs. I mean, they hate the MSOs. They hate big business. And I, I think like that regulators like basically press released when they turned down Cureleaf and they said, you know, look how great we are. You know, we put people over profits, you know, we we shut down Cureleaf for not having their uh, collective bargaining figured out. Right. And they were like, like bragging about it. I mean, it's pretty wild, but it does show you, I think, two things. One, just the risks that big business operate in, especially in a politically sensitive industry like cannabis. Um, and then number two, you know, if you are not at the very top of your game on operations, um, you're going to have these these risks and the amount of mental energy your team is going to have to spend putting out these fires. It's not not a good place, right? That's not where you want to be. You want to be ahead of the curve, not constantly catching up on these things. Yeah, I think Curly, you know, has, has always, you know, given such a wide approach, you know, uh, you know, somewhat pursuing growth over profitability for such a long time they've you know spread their footprint wide and you know i think it's you know we've pointed out this before you get you get the benefits of having exposure to growth markets but then you also have the negatives of you know kind of having your eggs in too many baskets and not being able to put enough focus on any given market and you you tend to have hiccups like these like you know luckily the the worst was avoided here and they were able to get their license reinstated but you know, there, there's clearly other examples, you know, obviously them shuttering uh, a number of markets on the West Coast was just, you know, a pretty clear example of, hey, we were trying to do too too much and, uh, you know, spreading our, our time and effort and money too far and you, you ultimately like pay a price on that. So I think, like you said, you definitely uh, have to look at Curaleaf, you know, in, in both ways, seeing the benefits of their aggressive approach, but also seeing the the challenges it offers. Yeah, and look, I mean the the makeup of this company, the strategy of growth to excite investors, um, and having you know Boris, who is one of the best sales people in the industry, go around exciting investors and having that growth capital. That's really not the strategy that is going to be working in people's favor uh, in a in a in a relatively frosty capital markets. And, you know, that's not Curaleaf's fault. I mean, that is the nature of how growth type companies have changed and how the capital available to fund losses has very much dried up. Um, but it's something to be aware of. And another thing is some of the, so what, what the company has been really good at doing is kind of finding what's next, right? Getting ahead of what's next. And that is the benefit of having separated, you know, the executive chairman role from the CEO role, right? The, the, uh, the chairman can go and, um, you know, work on, you know, doing a deal in Germany, right? Where Boris has good connections um, and, and Europe in general. But one of the things to be aware of is that Germany story, I think uh, we've been disappointed by. So we thought we were going to get a faster or a um, more robust legalization. It's getting scaled back to this idea of social clubs. And one of the exciting things about Germany was that as Germany goes, the rest of the EU will start to fall in line behind it. Well, you know, Germany is not really getting a full legalization. It's getting some kind of pilot program that probably puts the brakes on all of the other EU programs as well. So I think you know, that was a key part of the the Curaleaf story that was kind of sexy and uh, was very rightfully exciting investors. 
And um, I think that has to be extremely discounted now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously they're still uh, bullish on the market. And, you know, I, I have heard from people who operate in Germany and they do say there, you know, there is upside, particularly on the medical market with some of these changes that, sure. you know, essentially allows the patient count to grow uh, quite broadly and, you know, frees up resources in that regard. But yeah, like you said, I definitely have more questions than answers at this point. Cause yeah, I think when, you know, I'm obviously not in in Europe and know what the culture is like there, but generally when I've seen markets decriminalize, allow home grow and allow these social clubs, you know, that, that sounds a lot to me like a, you know, a pseudo gray market that's going to create lots of competition and price compression. Um, Agreed. But Agreed. definitely, yeah, well, I guess we'll have to kind of like wait and see ultimately how this unfolds because, you know, they have taken a, a, a meaningful position there. Um, and, and continue to pursue it aggressively. Agreed. So let's start by uh, kicking off the numbers. Sure. So yeah, um, you know, I think more than almost anyone, we could call the last couple quarters messy for Curaleaf just because they had number one the transition from IFRS to GAP. Um, you know, which is something we've been noting for a while as you know, Cura remained the last major MSO not to make the switch, and you know, we kind of. Uh, inferred that perhaps that was to make margins look a little bit better. And uh, that, that certainly what uh, became apparent. And then, you know, on top of that, they had a, a number of impairments and write downs in Q4. And then they had this, this large exit from the the West coast that, that also influenced numbers. So, uh, you know, looking at top line Q4 was uh, 352.5 million. And then Q1 uh, was down to 335 million. Um, so, so, uh, quite a drop and again, mainly due to that, that West coast exit, um, and, and losing the revenue from that, those markets, um, Kira did open three stores in Florida during the quarter, saw the onset of, uh, adult use sales, uh, at two of their Connecticut stores. And, the, and then they had a wholesale business as well. Um, and then, you know, post quarter they, they've opened two more stores in Florida, did a deal in Utah for three stores. Um, so obviously continue to have uh, growth levers going forward. And then, like you said, uh, Maryland uh, on July 1st should be a, a good opportunity for them where they have four stores in, in a grow. Um, and, and I think uh, I was looking at some BDSA data from Q1. They had, the I think, the fifth largest market share in the state. Um, so it should be a good market for them. In Maryland, you're saying? Yep, in Maryland. Okay, nice. And how much benefit do you think they're getting from Connecticut? I mean, it's, it's definitely hard to see, like, given how many, how much, how many things are changing, uh, you know, top line and, and margin wise quarter to quarter with, with the West coast closings, but I got to imagine they have, you know, decent market share in the state, given there was only four growers in total. And, you know, I think one of those is, is green, green rose holdings who, who I don't think has a huge footprint, mm -hmm. um, and then, and then those two stores, like I said, are, are open to adult use with with two more on the way. Um, so definitely a, a good size footprint. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of that, you know, I don't think the revenue is huge, but I bet it's high margin revenue coming in. Right. Um, and, and, you know, to Curaleaf's credit, I think they did, along with the West Coast uh, exits, showed some improvement in the margin profile and, and in, at least in partially in the cash flow profile. But more in the in the opex uh, number that came in, we clearly saw those those West Coast markets were you know drags on the on the company as a whole. 
Totally. Do you want to go through the uh, the operational numbers? Yep. So uh, adjusted EBITDA was flat Q4 to, to Q1, 73 million in, in both quarters. Um, and so, you know, margin is, is right at 21.8% here in uh, Q1. Um, so obviously down from that kind of mid 20s area that we saw them report under IFRS. Um, and, you know, relatively, there, there were some adjustments in there, like $9.4 million in one-time cost and then a small amount of SBC, but, you know, that relatively is an accurate number. Uh, gross margin uh, was messy in Q4 to, to, due to some inventory write-downs. It was down to 22%, and then Q1 here was back up to 48%. Um, but they noted the Q4 figure without those inventory adjustments was 49%. Um, so, so pretty stable quarter to quarter. Q1 operating income came in at 16.4 million. Um, so not a bad number there as, you know, gross margin was relatively stable, but then the big decrease came on the OPEX side. Q4 was 160 million and then it was down to 143 million in, in Q1. So a, a nice drop in OPEX. And, you know, I think the exit from the West Coast was a big part of that down to uh, 43% of revenue in Q1. Now, do you know, sorry, do you know what those West Coast states, because um, I did notice on the cash flow statement, they differentiated between ongoing states and discontinued operations, but there was a large loss from those um, from those West Coast states in there. So have those been sold or shut down completely, or are they still going to some degree? It, I think they've been shut down in full. I, I did note there was, you know, some assets for sale noted in the, uh, on their balance sheet. Um, and I did look at that, you know, uh, what that breakdown was. Some of it is, it goes, uh, a big chunk of it actually goes way back to the grassroots deal. There's like six extra Illinois stores that they have been trying to sell forever, but have been stuck in that lawsuit with uh, Parallel, who was right. like going to buy them and then obviously face the issues that they're facing. And then they did list that, I think it was like 30 or 40 million or so in, in projected asset sales from those West Coast markets. Um, so I think they have closed down, so it's you know no longer a drag on on operating financials as much. But they you know they they should at least benefit somewhat from ultimately selling those facilities as well. Got it, got it, got it. So um, and that was a big difference between you know the earnings release and the filings here, right? Saying that we had this great positive operational cash flow uh, before taxes. That is. Uh, on their on their operations, continuing operations, but then when you peel back the curtain, it's like, hey, they actually had a huge negative cash flow from those discontinued operations, right? So it'll be interesting to see if that continues into Q two or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said, thirty point six million was the was the headline number of continued operations OCF, but fourteen point two million was the actual number that that hit the books um, that included the close down of those facilities, and then. And then, like you said, uh, Kira accrued uh, $42.2 million in taxes in the quarter. Um, so either way, tax-adjusted OCF, even if you use their $30.6 million figure, was still a, a, a negative $12 million. And then, you know, in actual numbers, it was, it was negative $28 million in tax-adjusted OCF. So that was definitely, in my mind, one of the biggest negatives in the quarter. They did have uh, inventory jump by quite a bit. It was up 22 million to 261 million total. And, you know, management did note that like throughout the rest of 2023, they expect a, a 40 to 50 million decline in that inventory number, which mm -hmm. should improve 
uh, cash flow for the, the rest of the year. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that's true. It's, you know, I, I think inventory is always an interesting one to look at just because, you know, selling through that inventory, number one, isn't guaranteed. And then number two, if you really do want to sell through it, sometimes you have to make dramatic uh, price cuts in order to get that through. So does margin decline come along with inventory sell through? We'll, we'll yeah, what what, what I'll say in their, to their credit for inventory, and I'll say this for actually all the operators, is that you're making a good point, right? We don't know if it's good inventory or bad inventory, right? But typically, these guys are smart enough to build inventory at the right places at the right times. So for example, before New Jersey launched, you saw big inventory builds, right? And an inventory build is a negative cash flow item, right? Because you're putting money into inventory and not realizing it yet. Similarly, um, this quarter ended at the end of March. 420 is coming up. So you're probably stockpiling inventory pretty aggressively. I could also see them stockpiling inventory for Connecticut, uh, sorry, not Connecticut, for Maryland, right? So um, I would imagine that for Q1 and Q2, for all of these companies, you're putting money into inventory for Maryland and for 420. So now I'm glad you normalized because I think, I mean, there's a lot going on in this cash flow statement, but you have a, you're, um, they have a decrease of 22-ish million because of inventory. Then they have a, another decrease of about nine-ish from accounts payable. So it's actually they're, they're paying down their AP, which is the opposite of Cresco. But then they had the benefit of about 11.7 from accruing expenses. So that basically cancels out your AP plus another 2 million. So your, your negative hit on inventory uh, after all those is roughly 20 million. But then there's a $42 million hit on income tax payable, right? So uh, ultimately, if you if you normalize all this, the OCF should still be negative five, six million bucks, depending on what else you choose to to add or subtract here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, the the drop in in, in cash stood out. Uh, you know, a drop from one hundred sixty three million down to one hundred and fifteen million from Q four to Q one. Yeah. Um. You know, that was driven. You know the positive OCF on paper was offset by 26 million in CapEx spend, um, which obviously was a big number. They do, they do suggest that'll, that'll come down in the future quarters. And then they did pay down debt by 30 million. Uh, interestingly in the quarter, it dropped from a total of 622 million down to 593 million in, in total debt. Um, you know, it will be uh, somewhere to look at, especially coming up in Q2 where uh, Kira will have two tax payments. Um, note they, had, they didn't pay any taxes here in Q1. And then they also have a Bloom cash payment in Q2. So I think the, the Q2 cash figure uh, will be uh, amongst the lowest we've like seen from the company in, in a number of years. Uh, you know, and, and Boris did a, um, a spaces on Twitter recently and you know, critiqued the idea of having any cash on the balance sheet, saying you have to put it back into the business. In my mind, that's him getting ahead of of what the Q two cash figure is gonna is gonna yeah. look. Like. Interesting point. And, and sorry, one point I I should give them some credit for here is I'm saying negative five ish million OCF, but that there's negative sixteen and a half million from discontinued operations. So if truly those operations are now done, and let's say that number essentially becomes zero, whether it's Q two or Q three, then they would be something like plus ten million of OCF, which would be pretty good, right? So um, so I, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm pointing that out is that uh, I want to see how this discontinued operations line plays out. 
Uh, yeah. Nick, do you, do you want to talk about adjusted EBITDA, EBITDA for the year and, and valuation? Sure. I did do a, a lazy route with this one. I uh, need them put their uh, Q1 review up. So I, I uh, took uh, their uh, an EV number and, and EBITDA estimates, which uses facts at uh, consensus. Sure. Um, so uh, enterprise value all in right now is just right at $3 billion. Could be a, a slightly above it. Mm-hmm. Um for for this year, uh, let's see. I think consensus right now is that uh, you know co- the company will generate one point three seven billion in revenue, and then adjusted EBITDA will be at three hundred thirty million. Um, so that puts our EV to EBITDA multiple, uh, you know, pretty close to what we saw with Cresco. I have it anywhere from you know eight to nine times. Uh, yeah, and, and do you have any comment when you look at their EBITDA and their their addbacks here? Like, do you does that three thirty track for you, or do you think that's too optimistic? Yeah, I mean, at least here in, in this in Q one, the addbacks were relatively limited. Um, you know, especially compared to I think what we've seen from you know, them in, in in the past, and you know, uh, one time adjustments were nine point four million, which isn't nothing, but it, it's not a huge number, and then. Uh, SBC was 1.7 million a quarter, so that you know does seem like a number that that they could potentially hit. Seems you know perhaps a little bit high to me, but I do think uh, you know I think if some of the discontinued operations really were that much of a drag, and then you add in uh, the upside in you know Connecticut, further stores coming online, including their own, and then and then Maryland turning on, uh, and then continued growth, I think in Florida. Will, will always be a focus for theirs. I think with all of those, you know, maybe that's a, a realistic number, low, low 300s. Got it. Okay. So I ran it at, and I'll pull up my model. I, I have about 725 million shares. I ran it between 250 and $3 US per share. Um, and then in terms of debt, uh, it's a lot of different things here, but I'm getting accounts payable about 72, accrued liabilities about 180. Taxes payable about two hundred, notes payable about five hundred and twenty-four. There's a finance expense which I highlighted because I'm a little unclear as to exactly what it is. Um, I usually don't include lease liabilities, but I, I think this is a little different. Um, I think this is like uh, you know uh, loans related to financing equipment, um, and then I I included a hundred million of deferred tax liability, which I, I think when companies write off some of their goodwill, they might be able to decrease this this long-term deferred tax liability. So I'm getting a total tax number after a little bit of credit for cash of about $1.275 billion, which is you know not a small number by any means. So market caps I'm getting uh, at $250 a share, I'm about $3.1 bill on EV. Um, and that goes up to about $3.45 bill at $3. So um, at $300, million of EBITDA and, and we can use 325. If we want, you're getting to about nine and a half to 10 and a half times. Uh, and uh, if you can go up to, you know, 350, you're in the, you know, nine to 10 times. And if you go up to 375 of EBITDA, you know, you're eight to nine times. So if you want a, a broad range, you're somewhere, um, I would say today, like nine on the low end and, and probably 10 and a half on the high end. Uh, but nine to ten is probably where you are today, and you know if they if they really get some improvements, um, the lowest you are is probably eight on EV to EBITDA, uh, and 
look, it's better than Cresco. Um, and you have these these tailwinds still, you know, maybe a little bit of Europe, um, Maryland, absolutely. Uh, you know, some of the new states that they're they're getting into, like Utah, are interesting. But um, it, it's certainly not a no-brainer at today's prices, right? It sort of looks okay, uh, not, not particularly attractive, especially with the cash flow situation, in my opinion. Yep, totally agree there. Now, if that cash flow improves because of those discontinued operations... Um, then I'm I'm totally willing to give it a fresh look and say that you know it might be worth uh, some additional consideration. Yeah, and they did you know they reiterated their cap or uh, cash flow guidance for the year. They, they estimate total capex at seventy million and their uh, free cash flow guide at fifty to sixty million, uh, which would imply you know one hundred twenty to one hundred thirty million of OCF uh, for all of twenty three. Um, you know, certainly my question is like. Is, what sort of adjustments are are realistic to make to that figure? You know, if you, again, you know, last year across accrued liabilities and accrued expenses, it, it was about, you know, a hundred million uh, increase over the course of 2022. So, you know, their, their operational cash flow figure was on paper, uh, you know, a, a lot, it looked a lot better than it actually was. So, you know, hopefully they can hit that, that guidance, but I, I do wonder, how much of that is just delayment and paying paying various bills as opposed to true uh, cash flow? Yeah, look, I think I got to see it to believe it. Um, I, I think on the positive side, like this company is always up to something. Um, disappointingly, like we haven't heard more about this, you know, magic rosin ace extraction machine, right? So some of the things that we've been excited for in the past have not come to fruition. Um, and now Boris is very good at sniffing out what's next. Right. What's the next thing that'll get investors excited that we can get in front of? Um, so maybe more M and A. Right. This is one of the few companies that actually year over year had an increase in revenue, and that's because of M and A. Right. It's because bringing in you know other companies like Bloom. Um, so we'll see. Right. But I, I think that's kind of why we have it where we have it. Um, it's something that you know we really have to see some improvements um, or some changes to valuation before we get really excited about this. Yep. Agreed. Okay, moving on. So next on the list, we have the beast from the southeast, TrueLeave. Nick, what did you think about TrueLeave's quarter? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely got some negative headlines here in Q1. And you know, I think it's something that we forecasted in, in our even going back to our Q3 review last year was that like, hey, when we look at this footprint, the core footprint of Florida, Arizona and Pennsylvania, there was just, you know, more competition and not a lot of growth baked into it. Totally. Um, and I think that's, you know, proven out true for, for the most part. Um, when you, when you look at the top line results and, you know, even the, the, the margin results coming down, I mean, it's been a pretty precipitous drop where, you know, I think when the, the, um, deal was, was first announced with harvest, uh, or first closed, they did a combined of 318 million, uh, I think that was Q2 2022. And then, mm -hmm. you know, revenue here at Q4 was down to 302. And then a, a pretty steep drop in Q1 down to 290 million. Um, and, and so obviously a pretty dramatic drop from when the deal was, was first closed. And, you know, I think to their credit, they, you know, they have opened into new States. Like they're, you know, the first to open up in Georgia, they have two stores open today. They have a, you know, a big position in West Virginia, I think, you know, 10 stores or something, but 
those are you know very early medical markets that are limited both in patient count and and you know product use form and uh, unfortunately aren't needle movers so um, you know I think it's good to see progress in, in those states but ultimately the core business in Florida where they're you know to their credit they continue to be a, to be a monster and, and hold on to a lot of market share but there's just a lot of new competition coming online and building out and you know, I think they've had to continue to to discount to to keep that market share. Um, yeah, one one interesting thing too about TrueLeaf is that they have this monster new facility which came online last year, and uh, it, it's it's something like, you know, in a typical facility, you know, you could have a facility that's like 20, 40, 60, 80,000 square feet, and then the rooms are you know something like three thousand to five thousand square feet. Um, this facility, the rooms are 24,000 square feet. <laughs> so like just to give you a sense of what a monster this facility is. And um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the rationalization of their footprint, right? Are they, are they still recognizing some um, operational synergies of, you know, shutting down facilities and, and, and moving over to this giant mega facility, right? Uh, ultimately, one of the things we, we pointed out you know, for months and months now is, is looking at this and saying things are not trending the right way in Florida overall. Patient growth has slowed. Yes, the numbers are still very impressive, but you have stores popping up everywhere. Um, you know, Trulieve was able to keep ahead of the margin compression by simply opening more stores and opening a gigantic amount of new stores over, um, you know, and, and that was the story of 21 and 22. And they hit a wall at some point, right? Because at some point, you're just saturated. So, and, and even at some point, they were starting to compete with themselves in certain markets. So I think that uh, that has been a challenge. I think also one of the things to look at in this quarter, Q1 and Q4, those are bad quarters for the industry seasonally, except in Arizona and Florida. Those are actually the best quarters for Arizona and Florida. So that's a little disappointing if you sort of take the results and look forward um, they're probably gonna gonna deteriorate in the next two quarters. Now, four twenty is good, obviously, but so Q two might be decent, but Q three you're gonna have a problem. Um, so, so that's something to think about when you're looking at TrueLeaf's results. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's well said. And you know, I think looking at you know, I gave that three hundred eighteen million number a year ago in in twenty two. Since then, they've opened twenty eight new stores. And wow. revenue has declined from 318 to 290 million. Um, yeah, you know that's just a fundamental problem because then you have all the extra costs from those stores, and mm-hmm. you know revenue has declined precipitously. So uh, it, it, it's tough economics to work with. Yeah. Now, and before we just jump into the numbers, you know, one of the things that excites me about TrueLeave and and is interesting and and why I want to keep such a close eye on it is that we're going to know, I think, in the next few months um, if the recreational measure in Florida is going to make it to the ballot. Now, once it makes it to the ballot, you still have to hit 60% votes. So it's definitely a high bar to cross. Not saying it's not doable, but it, that is just a challenge. You know, if it was 50%, I would say no problem whatsoever. But 60 is is challenging. But this is the first hurdle is getting past the Supreme Court. The Florida AG is making the same argument they made last time that it doesn't pass single subjectivity. I think that is a not a very good argument, but it re- might really not matter, right? If if the Supreme Court is willing to kind of put politics first and thinks that it it doesn't want this on the ballot 
because 24 is going to be a very important election and this will be a distraction, then, you know, they might they might choose to agree with the argument and strike it down again. So if it makes it to the ballot, then you start getting interested again. Um, and, and one thing to note as well in this quarter, when we go through the operational cash flow numbers, truly did make an another an additional $10 million payment towards the campaign. So I think, you know, very reasonable to to add that back in their operational cash flow. Um, and I think they've put something like 40 to $50 million into the campaign at this point. We'll have to put more in if they if they actually, you know, do get on the ballot. But the amount they stand to gain is obviously gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, definitely, a, you know, somewhat of a binary outcome <laughs> relying on on Florida, the adult use ballot, like you said. I mean, this is... Mm-hmm an effort that they've largely single-handedly led uh, in terms of vote gathering and, you know, the amount of time and effort they put into it. But obviously, like mm-hmm. you said, they're the single biggest beneficiary if it does go their way. So, totally. uh, you know, v- very much, you know, uh, just a crazy option call uh, on whether that passes or not. Yeah, it's the ultimate binary outcome, right? I mean, it's either, either you get it, hallelujah. And uh, I mean, that could be the most bullish thing for the entire industry if Florida was to go wreck because everyone is so exposed to Florida. I mean, it would be, it would be gigantic and, and it's such a, such a tourist friendly state, right? I mean, it would be unbelievable. So, so um, let's get right into the numbers. So I'll, I'll let you go. Sure. So yeah, we cover, we cover the top line looking at uh, adjusted EBITDA. Q4 was 85 million, which was a, a 28% margin and it dropped to 78 million. Uh, here in Q1, which was a 27% margin. Um, you know, th- this was the first time uh, since the Harvest deal was announced that there weren't a, a crazy number of adjustments to that figure. Um, you know, in the past, there's 20, 30, 40 million of adjustments in certain quarters to the mm-hmm. adjusted EBITDA figure, which is why, like, it ultimately wasn't translating to cash flow. Uh, but here in Q1, you know, it seems like the harvest integration is largely complete, you know, only 1.9 million in one time costs and uh, about two and a half million in, F- in SBC. Um, looking at gross margins, Q4 was 49.5%, Q1 it was 52%. Um, so still, you know, operating at, you know, what is largely industry, industry leading margins and, you know, still driven by Florida ver- verticality, despite the price compression we've seen there. So good to see uh, operating income. Uh, it came in at negative 13 million, but, but a big chunk of that was that they, they took a 31 million dollar impairment during the quarter. I think mm-hmm. that's largely I think that was due to a uh, facility in Florida. They, they closed. Uh, like you spoke to in the transition to their new super facility. Um, so it, operating income would have been 18 million without that impairment. Uh, the, the biggest improvement we saw in the quarter, um, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, they, they did a series of uh, cost reduction efforts, which included layoffs. And then, like you said, the switch to the new facility. Um, so operating expenses, 156 million in Q4. Uh, Q, Q1, you, it does seem higher because it has that impairment. But if you remove the impairment, which is a, you know, a non-cash change, op, OPEX was $132 million. So mm. a, a pretty significant drop quarter over quarter, uh, 51.6% of revenue in Q4 down to 45.7% in, in Q1. So still somewhat high relative to peers, but a, a big improvement. Uh, looking at cash flow, uh, 
Q4 was you know positive 55 million, but that that was entirely due to, to tax payment timing timing. Here in Q1, it was essentially flat, 410,000 of uh, positive operating cash flow. And you know, to their credit, they actually did pay down taxes. Uh, so tax adjusted operating cash flow was 13.8 million, uh, which you know, I think. A lot of the focus definitely was on that, you know, the top line miss and the adjusted EBITDA miss. But for me, I thought that improvement in tax adjusted operating cash flow back into positive territory was, uh, you know, one of the biggest positives in the quarter that that, that I saw. Yeah. And just to, to kind of be fair to them and normalize the other things we've talked about. Right. So so they paid some of the back taxes, about 13.4, as you said. And there also was, if you look above that, there was about 7.9 that was put towards the deferred income tax. So that's their deferred tax liability, the DTL number, which we're always never sure what's going on. So total, that's about 21 million. So 21 million in terms of total tax payments. But then you look at some of the positives and they accrued long-term liabilities of 11. They had accounts payable of nine. So it's about you know 20 million. So it, it basically nets you out to just positive two. There was some some deferred revenue as well that they had to catch up on. So it takes you to about positive six and a half mil. Still good, just not as good as as it might look if you only adjust for the uh, for the tax number. Yep, yep, those are good adjustments, and that did go against. They spent thirteen point seven million in uh, in capex on the quarter, um, and then. And 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 also sorry in the in the capex line I I love that they had uh, purchases for of internal use software is a capex item I I don't know how that's not an operating item but okay fair enough right so just like something I would probably look at in the OCF line as well but yeah you know and and also from the financing activities there's two million bucks on financing lease obligations so not lease payments per se but they could be you know financing leases for equipment for example so if you put those back into OCF as well, you go from, you know, plus six and a half to maybe plus two, right? So more or less, you're kind of break even on this business today. Yep. Yep. I think that's a a fair analysis. Sorry. And although the big question is if the 10 million went out the door for that make it legal campaign, then you add 10 million to this. So that's a little unclear to me. So either you're break even or you're plus 10 million, depending on if the money actually went out the door today for that campaign. So I think, uh, and I think it did. So I mean, if that's the case, then you had 10 million of OCF you put towards the campaign, which is pretty damn good. So um, hard to say with all these adjustments, right? Exactly where you are, but you're somewhere between zero and $10 million. Yep. I think that's a good uh, number to kind of, to estimate for them. And, you know, it does show the, you know, their, their, their balance sheet looks, I think, pretty solid. They still have a healthy cash position, 188.1 million. So mm-hmm. You know, breaking even on on OCF isn't necessarily the, the you know uh, an immediate concern for them. Uh, you know, debt is definitely quite high. I think it's up to six hundred forty-seven million just in uh, debt, not even including like lease liabilities and and some of the other uh, current liabilities on their balance sheet. So yeah, so here's here's what I did for debt: accounts payable is about ninety-two million, liabilities is about twenty-five, taxes is another two hundred and fifty. Notes payable six hundred and thirty million. Uh, I think your number might be a little bit higher. And then deferred tax liability again. I'm not sure what to put in here. I plugged in a hundred million, and I gave them a little bit of credit for cash. So you get to about a billion dollars of total 
debts and liabilities um, outstanding. 191 million shares. You're trading between four and five bucks uh, US. And you put that all together. On the low end, you're about 1.75 billion total. On the high end, you're about 1.95 billion total. What numbers, Nick, did you kind of look at in terms of EBITDA here? So EBITDA, I have a, let me see. Um, I have consensus right now at so 1.2, just over 1.2 billion in revenue, and then adjust to EBITDA dropping, you know, nine percent year over year down to 363 million. I believe is uh, analyst consensus right now. Um, that might be that seems a little high to me, um, but you know, call it mid mid 300s. Yeah, so I, that definitely seemed high to me. You know, I took their their seventy eight million figure from Q one, and uh, there was there was five million of sorry. I, I think I normalized it to about seventy five million times four. You're about three hundred, and you know they're going to have Maryland as well. Um, I don't see a lot of other growth points for them. I do think they should get credit for Georgia, but you know that's early stage. So I I kind of have them around three hundred to three fifty, and I feel they're going to be closer to three hundred depending on all these adjustments, right? So at today's values, I mean, you're between five and six times EBITDA. You know, on the high end, you're at maybe six and a half times EBITDA. So you're, you know, if you want to range, call it between five and six and a half. Pretty attractive, right? And in, in, uh, if, if you consider that. And if you consider the fact that because their debt is so high, which is not great, but because their debt is so high, any appreciation in the equity value, you know, it goes straight to the equity side of the equation, right? So that could actually end up being pretty positive for them. So, so you know, if, if multiples in the industry go from six to 12, then the share price should more than double, right? Because the debt component is fixed. So I think my two cents on this is, look, I, I mean, Truly is a very well-run well company. It has been really hard to figure out since the Harvest acquisition. The Florida ballot measure is the clearest, juiciest catalyst on the table for this company, obviously. But even just, you know, getting the cash flow in order, getting Maryland online and and getting the financial tailwind, you know, if you start to see consistently that they're actually putting up something like, you know, 10 plus million of of OCF a quarter, then it gets kind of kind of interesting at at five to six times EBITDA. You know, for for my money, in general, you know, given the exposure I have in the industry, I think when you're getting in around four to five times, let's say a range of four to six, that's kind of a juicier strike zone for putting on new exposure. I think Trulieve has a lot to like in general, but the markets of Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania, granted Florida and PA are still medical, those are markets that are challenged right now, more headwinds and tailwinds. So I think we need to see something change to get really excited about this and that something could be the price coming down a little bit. It could be, you know, seeing some stabilization of OCF. Um, It could just see outside results in Maryland, but something has to change here for me to get really excited about it. Although it's not, it's not bad today. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree there. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people look at, you know, headline numbers and, and I think that's unfortunately going to be a, a negative for for truly like it was here in in, in Q1 where you know they're, they're just not going to have those growth drivers like you said Maryland will be a decent market for them they have three stores they have uh you know again going back to that BDSA data they have the number 8 market share in the state on the wholesale side at 3.7% but so 
So a good market, not a great market necessarily. And then, you know, Georgia and West Virginia will be, you know, have that early medical growth. But like you said, I think overall that likely will be offset by pressure in, in their core markets. So then, uh, you know, focusing on reducing costs and, and maximizing cash flow ahead of that, that binary option in, in Florida will, will kind of be like the story of 2023 for me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it looks like um, in terms of their debt, they have uh, still have plenty of term left on the debt. So I don't think that's something that is a huge issue. So, um, you know, that that's nicely locked in. Um, and I would say that. Uh, yeah, I would say the focus, I mean, as with, with most companies right now, right, the focus really is on can we generate OCF and uh what's next? Where's the growth going to come from, right? We have till 26 for this debt, which is plenty of time, but um, what's going to change, right? So um, that being said, you know, truly starting to look interesting again, um, just maybe a little bit better options uh, in, you know, if if Florida doesn't go the way you want it to in terms of uh, uh, the, the make it legal campaign. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Do you want to cut it here, Nick? Okay, Nick, let's keep it rolling. And next on the list, second last, is Verano. And, um, you know, we've, I think we've debated back and forth until we're blue in the face about, you know, Verano or GTI. And over the last few quarters, I think GTI really jumped ahead of Verano due to consistency and just giving investors comfort. Um, if you remember, Verano had some restatements that got a little ugly and uh, made investors lose trust in the company. And really, I think the the story of Verano has just been a lot of ups and downs, right? They'll have sort of a soft quarter and then they'll blow the doors off the quarter. And what effect that's had is investors don't know what to think, right? And then when you restate your financials, then people are, you know, then the the rumor mill really starts and people are like, what's wrong here? So I think just to start, you know, Nick, I thought this was actually the best quarter, that being Q1, I thought it was the best quarter we've seen out of Verano in a long time in the fact that it was simple, it was clean, it was a very positively OCF generative. I think they did a lot of things really well this quarter. Yeah, yeah, totally agree there. That was my initial takeaway from the quarter. Um, you know, I think kind of returned to their old form of, you know, I, I think what was a lot of our initial thesis behind the company of, you know, operating lean, uh, you know, being very methodical about their expansion strategy. And, you know, I think they had exposure to, to key markets um, that, that drove growth and, you know, lo- looking out for the rest of the year, ha- have further drivers in, in states like Maryland and continued growth in Connecticut, um, Florida, which is obviously a core market, um, but yeah, really just found a, a good footing here, um, and even had a you know growth in a what, what is con, what is usually a, a, a seasonally weaker Q1. Yeah, good point. And, and remember, these, this company is big in Arizona and Florida, so um, similar to Trulieve, you know, we have to say for them, Q4 and Q1 should actually be somewhat better quarters, right? I mean, it's it's um, you know as compared to GTI, for example, they're the markets like Arizona and Florida that 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 Verano's big in, those should be uplifted during Q4 and Q1. And then their home market of Illinois or, you know, market like PA should probably be a little bit depressed Q3 
during these quarters, right? Okay, Nick, do you want to jump into Verano's numbers? Sure. So yeah, starting with top line, Q4 came in at 226 million, uh, and then Q1 up slightly to 227 million. Uh, that, you know, they noted uh, uh, CPG growth in uh, Connecticut, where they had a pretty significant wholesale market share, um, al- along with a store that turned online to adult use. Uh, continued growth in New Jersey, and then they opened six uh, new stores in the quarter as well, mostly in Florida. Uh, on the adjusted EBITDA side, we did see a decline there, $79 million in Q4, down to $71 million here in Q1, so a decline from 35% to a 31% margin, so still a strong margin relative to peers, but it, it did drop quarter over quarter. Gross margins were actually up 46% in Q4, up to 48% in Q1, um, so you know, stable there, a good number. Uh, operating income came in at a pretty strong 33.8 million. So, so a nice figure there, as you know, gross margin was was stable, and they did see a, a reduction in uh, operating expenses. Uh, Q4 was at 81 million, if you exclude some of the impairments, and it dropped to 75 million here in Q1. Uh, so, a nice lean. OPEX, you know, as a percentage of revenue at 33%. Um, So, you know, that definitely stands out at, you know, compared to the first three, you know, Trulieb, Curaleaf and Cresco were all in the, you know, kind of mid 40s range. Uh, That's definitely a differentiator here being in the in the low 30s. Got it. Um, turning to uh, operating cash flow, you know, I think we, we, you touched on this at the start. Definitely one of the um, most important things to, to see. You know, I think this has been a a, a primary um, you know attractive feature of the company in the past. You know, looking back to even twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, was there generation of cash flow? Um, you know, in twenty twenty two, like you said, turned very choppy, um, and I think gave you know, investors a little caution as to like what the company actually looked like. So a nice, you know, return to stabilization here, 16.8 million in operating cash flow. Um, and, you know, they actually did pay down taxes uh, beyond what they accrued in the quarter by 5 million. So tax adjusted cash flow was positive 22 million. Um, so a, a, a strong showing that, uh, they did part of that was driven by inventory sell through is down 11 million. Um, but they also paid down accounts payable. So a bit of a, a wash there. Um, yeah, so exactly. Was- and, and the only thing I would add is deferred taxes. They also paid down, which is that, that deferred tax liability by 3 million. So if you put that in as well, you've got almost 25 million, basically 25 million of normalized cash flow for the quarter, which is great. I mean, that's the best of any of these companies that we've looked at so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely the the standout, and you know I think people definitely were starting to have some concerns. You know, cash was getting a, a little bit lower. You know, it, it landed at ninety five million here in uh, Q one. Uh, you know, capex spend has definitely come down quite a, quite a bit, only eight point six million. Um, so that you know the operational cash flow more than uh, offset that that capex spend and. Um, you know, people obviously critique the, the the income tax payable line item, which you know is quite high. It's at uh, what did it land two hundred forty seven million or two hundred forty eight million this as of Q one. Um, but yeah, for the, like we said, for the you know first time in a while, that was paid down by five million. So I think they've reached a point 
and management even kind of noted this in the call that like, hey, we're at this is kind of the level of income tax payable we're going to keep going forward. Right. Um, so it's good to see that that cash generation even despite that. Yeah, and, and the other thing too is that you know other companies have caught up with them on taxes payable. Like they've they've ballooned their um, their taxes, right? So I think uh, th- that's been really interesting to kind of look at. Is that is that although um, that was a you know they had a really large payable balance um, in the past. They still have a fairly large one, but um, other companies have also copied that strategy. So it's become a bit of uh, it's become a bit a bit of an issue, I would say overall um, w- when you look at the industry. But for Verano now, you're like, okay, if they can kind of maintain it this way, not so bad, right? Um, and you know, talk about free, being free, free cash flow generative, which is true, um, and it's nice to see. But it is coming at the expense of investing in capex. And when we talk about GTI next. You'll see that's the biggest difference between these companies right now. It's that GTI is carrying less debt, and so their interest expense is lower. Um, and then they're reinvesting in the capex side of the business, and pretty aggressively as well, like surprisingly aggressively. So that's the biggest differentiator between these two companies right now. Um, however, I would say Verano did a ton of M and A over the last two years, um, so they they bought a lot of those assets. And, um, you know, depending on which state we're talking about, they might not need that much CapEx reinvestment right now. Yeah, that, that's how I looked at it as well as, you know, uh, GTI is definitely putting more money into just expanding their existing licenses, whereas Verano, you know, and, and Cureleaf and a few others have been more M&A focused. So I, I do think that balances out slightly, but I, I do think that is, is a good point to bring up is that, you know, if we're... Yes, we're looking at the numbers right now, but I guess looking out to, you know, 24 and 25, you know, companies across the board have been talking about reduced CapEx spend. And, you know, for a lot of them, they, you know, really needed to do so. Uh, but ultimately, you know, when, when we think about future growth, what, what you're putting into the money today is going to ultimately influence those 24 and 25 numbers. So it's definitely something to keep in the back of your mind. Absolutely. So um, do you want to walk through... Uh... Uh, EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA? Sure. So for Verano, I have, um, I'll start with consensus numbers. Uh, Right now, expecting revenue uh, for the year up 7% over 22 at 955 million. Uh, And then adjusted EBITDA, they expect it to land at 312 million. what do you think of that number? It doesn't it actually seems pretty reasonable me to me. You know, if you annualize uh, the number right now, we're at you know j- just around two hundred eighty million. Um, yeah, I thought I thought the seventy ish million of EBITDA was actually pretty reasonable here. So multiply that out, you get two eighty. Uh, then you add Maryland on top of that, which I think they're going to do really well in. Uh, I think you're going to be well above three hundred. Like I think you're going to be in that. If I was to guess, I'd say you're somewhere between. You know, three hundred to three twenty-five. That's assuming IL, like Illinois, doesn't get beaten up too much. Uh, but I, I think you know you've got Connecticut. That's still a tailwind for you because you can open up some social equity stores, and um, you've got Maryland. So um, I think three hundred is a very reasonable estimate. And I would, I kind of did all the way up to three twenty-five just to to give it some some variability. 
Yeah, yeah, and in Maryland, like you said, should be a good market for them. They have the max of four stores, and and going back to uh, BDSA data, they had them right in Q1, right at uh, in the sixth spot at six point three percent market share, um, just behind uh, Cureleaf was it, which was in the five spot at six point eight percent market share. So it definitely should be a good market for them. And yeah, like you said, Connecticut, they have a big, uh, I think the largest in the state in terms of their uh, cultivation footprints. Um, so as new stores get opened up, they, they should be able to serve a good amount of that. And then, yeah, like you said, with hopefully with these social equity kind of a, where they're like helping them get launched, you know, I think that's a, a good avenue to getting your your brands into those stores as well. So uh, def- definitely should be a driver for the company, uh, along with, you know, New Jersey will continue to grow. Florida will continue to grow. Um, so, so definitely some growth drivers for the year. Yeah, uh, totally agree. So looking at the uh, numbers, right? So if I take Verano, so Verano has something like, uh, I put 450 million shares fully diluted. Uh, It's trading at, it's actually been trading in a pretty tight range. So I ran it between 275 US a share all the way up to 325, which is not a massive range, but it's, it's actually been pretty steady in there. Uh, And then um, I ran on, in terms of the, uh, debt side, uh, it's about $250 million of taxes payable, uh, about $400 million of notes payable, and then I put $100 million for deferred tax liability. Now, again, with all the deferred tax liability, I think I gave the companies some benefit of the doubt. Uh, my, th- my thought is that because of all of these write-downs on goodwill, you might be able to defer or reduce entirely some of that um, deferred tax liability. So. Um, We'll we'll see. Again, I, I just want to be clear. There's a little bit of uh, uh, room to play around there. Um, and then there's another, I would say about, you know, roughly 70 million bucks of uh, accounts payable and um, accrued liability. So uh, just updating that. And then on the EBITDA side, um, I ran 300, 325 and 350 to kind of give it the range, but let's say 300 to 325 is where we expect us to land. On the low end, you have a market cap of 2 billion, you know, 2.05 billion. On the high end, you're just under 2.3 billion. So you're something like seven times EBITDA today, um, maybe seven and a half on the high side, and maybe, you know, six ish six and a half ish on the low side. So I would say your range is six to seven and a half, um, maybe seven today. And, you know, six, if you shoot the lights out, seven and a half, if the price goes up again, you know, a little more expensive than true leave, but you know, your operational cash flow is better. I think the diversity of the States is better. You're still in a position to benefit from Florida if it turns over, um, but you're not necessarily dependent on it. Um, as, as much as true leave is. And you've got, uh, I think Maryland's going to do really well. I think Connecticut is doing well for them. New Jersey, a key driver. Um, and, and by the way, just to point out, it's actually impressive how well true leave has done when you consider that they have zero in New Jersey or Illinois. I mean, I think those are actually two big differentiating states for all of the other MSOs that true leave is getting zero benefit out of right now. So I think that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, that's a great synopsis on Verano, you know, cheap, much cheaper than, 
Cresco and Cureleaf and, you know, slightly more expensive than Truly, but, uh, you know, clearly, a, I think a reason for that, like you said, both cash flow profile and market footprint just being uh, a little bit more exciting to look at, looking at yeah. uh, this year and next. And keep in mind, these guys kept basically all of their real estate. So there is still the chance that they're able to start tapping into more mortgages uh, and use that for debt financing and, and as a source of, you know, potentially paying down or replacing some of their debt in the future, right? Now, they got caught um, with some shorter dated debt and had to refinance uh, kind of in the heydays of rates going up, which is very uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, they are through that now, but they're paying for it, right? And that's the benefit that GTI has. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I was going to bring up when we discussed GTI. But yeah, looking here at Verano and here in Q1, uh, you can look just on the cash flow. Notice they, other than, you know, the... PL, you can see what their interest expense was, but sometimes there's different elements to that. But on the on the cash flow uh, sheet, you'll see uh, cash interest paid in the quarter, and it was just over 15 million for for Verano. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, good to see that they were still able to generate uh, cash despite those those interest payments, because you know, 15 million <laughs> for one quarter is a pretty steep number, especially when, you know, I think GTI for all of 2023 projected their interest expense at around 18 million. Amazing. That, I mean, that, that is just such a huge delta between the two, right? Does 10 to 11 million a quarter going out the door for Verano in, in interest um, and non-tax deductible interest too, which is very painful. You know, this reminds me of reading through this statement and doing this analysis. And I always say this, I'm so glad that we do these reviews because it forces me to you know, do my homework when I might otherwise just forget about it. Um, it reminds me of uh, when we were, I was working on this deal and um, it, you know, I'd working on it in the fall and then didn't really work out. And then it was kind of Q1 and I, I called a friend of mine. I said, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, this, this investor passed on it last year, but I think we should show it to him again. And here's why, you know, here's, here's what's different. And he, he said, he said, you know, Manish, I love it. New year, new you, new time to look at this deal with fresh eyes. And uh, I thought that was just such a, such a fun spin on, you know, reintroducing a deal to somebody, right? Um, and I think that's how I felt about looking at this Verano statement. I said, you know what? Like this company has been through so much over the last two years. We've had to deal with, you know, a lot of fumbles on the company's part, you know, from, from restating the financials and all that. You know the the pain of the um, the debt having to be refinanced, the dumping of the shares in the open market, um, first by SOL Global and then the various um, uh, acquisition uh, targets, right? Dumping their shares, and now you look at it and you're like, you know, around three bucks. The company has been trading there for a while now. Um, from a from a, a EBITDA perspective, you know, you're something like seven times, which is know, not a screaming buy, but it's still pretty good. Um, you know, if it goes lower, then obviously it gets more interesting. We all understand that. But I think what they need now is some consistency. I think what they need now is just to put out, you know, a Q2 statement, which is kind of in line with this statement, right? Don't blow the doors off and surprise us to the upside. Um, and then, you know, have us have that be taken away from us, you know, in Q3, right? Just some consistency, I think would be really important. I also think that, you know, they've got a star player who is George Arcos. Um, Investors love to hear from George. I think at least once every couple months, 
uh, apart from the earnings calls, they need to be getting him out there doing something like fireside chat, interview, something for people to remember that, you know, this is the guy in charge of everything. And when people ask him, you know, even hard questions, he gives really good direct answers. And that makes investors feel good. So um, I'm starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel for Verano, which is great because I still own a ton of it. Um, and I could actually I could actually see myself adding to this on some weakness here. I think there's a good combination of factors here. I talked about last time with TrueLeave, the, um, the ability for TrueLeave to uh, become really interesting if Rec gets on the ballot. Well, I think Verano, you get kind of the best of both worlds, right? You get the upside of Florida, the potential upside of Florida, um, without being so reliant on Florida. So I think that's really interesting to me. Uh, and I don't know if the company will do more M&A. You know, they certainly are in a position where maybe they could do it. Um, but I, I think this is, I think they made some really good progress here. They just need to give people a little bit of stability right now. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a perfect synopsis. Definitely st- looking for stability in, in the year to come. And, you know, like you said, I think the, the footprint is mostly there, maybe some tuck-in acquisitions here and there. But for the most part, we should be pretty steady state where you can really just focus on operations and ultimately driving cash flow. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, so we talked about Connecticut. We talked about Maryland. You know, New Jersey should continue. I think you're, you'll be okay for at least the next year. Um, remember, New Jersey is only one year in, right? So we'll probably start seeing that deterioration and the compression coming on the back end. Um, Illinois, I think you're going to start to see some problems. Florida, uh, I mean, hard to say, right? Um, already compressed a lot. And then Ohio is really, I think, a 24 story if we can if we can get this, um, get it on the ballot. So uh, no Minnesota, right? Because um, they terminated the goodness deal. Uh, no New York. So I think that's actually benefiting them quite nicely right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the differentiation between GTI, right? With GTI, you're getting a lot of the same stuff we're talking about here, but you are getting Minnesota. Um, you, you're, you're getting a much lower absolute debt number. Um, and then you're getting the ability of a company to aggressively reinvest in CapEx. So I think that this was a great quarter for Verano. I think, you know, new year, new you, you know, new Verano potentially. And uh, I think this is something you want to keep a close eye on right now. If we have weakness overall, general markets, et cetera, et cetera, that I've been talking about for a while, um, this is something that I could see being really interesting. But I want to see another quarter of something similar to what we just saw. I don't want any more surprises. Yep, well said. Okay, let's close it out here with the one and only the big green machine, Green Thumb Industries. And uh, Nick, I think over the past few months, GTI has really separated from the pack and has proven to everybody um, the the benefit of stability and reliability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the share price hasn't really reflected that and, you know, trades with the rest of the market. But I think it's it's pretty clear from an operational standpoint that the idea of running lean and focusing on the states that, you know, that matter and produce good margins, not overextending yourself, always being focused on cash flow. Those those have been just inherent 
tenants of the company from inception. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think other companies are perhaps, you know, making an effort to get towards that now that, you know, things got a little dicey and capital dried up and interest rates went up. Um, but the fact that that has been a core element of the company since inception means that, you know, they can continue to operate at a, at a steady state and uh, ultimately have a, a balance sheet and a margin profile that allows them to, to play offense when others are retreating. That's a great synopsis right there, right? I mean, they are playing offense in the CapEx game while everyone else is playing defense. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, if just to jump ahead, if you look at the CapEx number for Q1, um, do you have any idea where all this money is going? I think it was like 65 million bucks. Like, where is that going? Yeah, so so they highlighted uh, four states primarily that it that it went towards. Um, I think you know three of them seem like fairly no brainers to me, and then uh, what one you know we, we've already discussed. So the, the four states were you know New Jersey, where they've had a a, a good footprint, but not a, a huge footprint. You know, a, a, a similar to you know what Curalee for Verano or Terrasen had. So I think they're expanding their capacity there and and we'll have some good growth drivers next minnesota uh an obvious no-brainer for them they're building a totally new cultivation facility there there's adult use pretty much guaranteed at this point now that it's passed both the the house and senate in minnesota and is essentially just waiting for the governor's bill or governor signing which he's already indicated he will do um, and, and there, you know, th- there are some interesting rules, you know, going back to they have, they have this uh, hemp derived market in Minnesota that's built into the to the bill. Um, but I think one you know benefit for them in the state is they'll be along with uh, goodness, uh, one of two operators who are essentially allowed to be vertical in the state. And it's kind of like a grandfathering of the medical license. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so going big there and, and taking an early position seems like a no brainer for them. They're also expanding their grow in Virginia, um, you know, one of four operators in the state. You know, adult use did get hung up um, in, in the legislation. And, you know, it's unclear when that'll happen, but it's a very solid medical market with good growth prospects. Fair. Um, and then, you know, I think a good chunk of that capital is is going to New York, similar to Cresco, where they, you know, uh, announced uh, a ground up uh, facility on, on, you know, on the former like federal prison yards and that, that was a big headline. So, you know, that perhaps is the one area where you could question what that return on investment looks like ultimately, given some of the challenges we've seen in the market. But overall, you know, three of those four markets seem like very profitable opportunities ahead for them and, and good markets to be putting money into. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would be, look, I mean, you're, you're seeing GTI and Cresco put money into New York, right? So what do they know that we don't? Right. I, I mean, I, I have to, you know, to see GTI doing it, too, you kind of go, OK, and now we don't know how much. Right. So so let's be careful there. Um, and they're they're very capital conscious. So maybe there's putting a little bit out, a little bit out, you know, and, and if you think about logistically as well. Right. They announced this big program. They're going to convert, you know, former prisons to um, a cannabis campus. I think it was uh, projected to be up to four hundred and fifty thousand square feet over three buildings. Well, there's zero chance we're ever building that, right? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe phase one will be, you know, 10,000, 15, 25,000 feet, but you probably need to make some progress or you risk losing it and pissing off the municipality. Um, so who knows how much they put in? But look, maybe they have an idea that 
you know, there's going to be something coming that's going to be more favorable to them, which we are seeing. There is some kind of change to the program. Um, I just have a hard time understanding how people are going to make sense of, you know, the pay to play fee, right? And and um, how that's going to pencil. W- one thing I also want to point out is that Maryland, uh, we didn't talk about this, but but Maryland has a use it or lose it clause when it comes to conversion from med to rec. So um, you have to put up, uh, I think it's it's up to $2 million per license. So that means each retail license, each grow license, each processing license has to pay up to $2 million. Uh, there's an equation based on your past sales. But if you just assume kind of $2 million for for a high-performing license, then if you have a full footprint, I mean, that's four stores a grow and a processing, that's $12 million you're outlaying on July 1st, or you're losing your license entirely. And uh, I have to think some small operators are going to be going to have to make some kind of deals with with some people they don't want to deal with necessarily to get that money, um, which is not good. I mean, it's the state of the industry. Uh, but but all of these guys are going to have to put money out the door for that to have that conversion uh, kick in. Right. So just something to be um, aware of uh, the the um, nuances of the programs. And, and last point on that, Nick, I don't know if you know this, but with Minnesota, it's a little unclear to me when they actually can convert from med to rec. Yeah, that, that's, I think, the biggest outstanding question is uh, it does seem like there is a delay built in for the program as a whole. It sounds like I think when the program gets started altogether is like when they'll be able to convert. Um, but that hasn't been decided yet. There is like as part of the bill, it stands up like a you know, a, a marijuana division of, of the government that'll like lay out some of these rules. But I, I do think it's a, a late 24 or early 25 conversion. So uh, for now, it'll be mostly medical market growth until then. Got it. Okay. So that's something that's a good, good bit to be aware of, right? Because uh, it's obviously easy to get excited about 23, but it sounds like it's a lot further out. But look, with GTI, you're getting that upside now it's a it's a much larger base so it won't move the needle as much but it also means that you're very diversified so if it ends up taking a year and a half that's okay right goodness growth you got a problem right (laughs) or goodness goodness is probably going to struggle um you know just to come up with a dough to to pay for the conversion in maryland for example um although they do have you know some assets in maryland so you know that's the benefit you're getting of these large operators um uh, nick I'll, i'll give it to you to start kicking off the numbers sure so yeah revenue uh q4 was at uh 259 million uh there was a drop here in q1 down to 248.5 million um it was actually their uh not that it means too much it was their first miss on consensus i think in like four years um, which does speak to the consistency of the company it was it was like a, a million dollar miss um, but, you know, essentially working off the same assets. So I think a lot of it can just be attributed to seasonality and probably, you know, some weakness in, in Illinois, which is what we've heard from other operators with Missouri coming online. Um, but, but looking ahead, you know, they do have uh, a good position in Connecticut. They had one store convert off the back uh, to adult use and they have two more on the way. Um, they'll, you know, have continued growth in New Jersey. They'll have... Uh, you know, right now, um, again, going to those BDSA numbers, they had the number two market share in Maryland, uh, actually hmm. behind a, a private company, Curio Wellness, had the number one share, but at 11.1%, GTI was second at 10.3%. Uh, 
Um, so, so a pretty, you know, substantial, at least on the medical side market share, um, that should set up for a, a healthy position in, in the adult use market, uh, to turn on in, on July 1st. So, um, and then alongside medical growth in, you know, in states like Minnesota and Virginia and Ohio, um, I think all of that points to, you know, a, a decent year of growth, probably offsetting some weakness in, in states like, you know, Illinois or Pennsylvania that are, you know, continuing to um, struggle with price compression. Uh, yeah. And one one thing I just want to point out, too, I just double checked. But in New Jersey, um, the Paramus store, that is the that's like their crown jewel store, still medical only, uh, have not been able to get that flipped over. Uh, and if if you remember, Rochelle Park is a Sens Crown Jewel store, doing huge numbers, not too far away, but in a different municipality. So, uh, you know, two sides, right? Um, if they get that, then boom, you could unlock, you know, a forty plus million dollar store. Uh, if they don't, then that was sort of a waste of a license of of uh, having that sit there, right? Yeah, that'll uh, be interesting because yeah, I know there was local pushback where they, mm-hmm. you know, the the. Pr- Prasmus Town essentially agreed not to have adult use sales, um, which was, you know, an option that all these different municipalities had in New Jersey. But you got to wonder if like, you know, if residents are going along just, you know, 10 minutes in one other direction and you're losing that revenue, perhaps it changes over time. Um, but this says, you know, Acreage, for example, who's in New Jersey, they they had a like an Atlantic City uh, location that they just recently moved um, because they similarly like didn't allow for adult use sales and, you know, they just up and decided to move it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that'll definitely be an interesting store to look at. Cause like you said, it's a, it's a very large modern store that they probably put a good amount of money into and it, it would definitely be a pain to have, have to move it. So we'll, we'll see if that one gets converted. For sure. Um, and, uh, do you want to go through the, uh, the, sure. Uh, yeah. Operating figures. Going. So yeah, adjusted EBITDA, eighty-one million in Q4, down to seventy-six million in, in Q1. Um, so pretty stable margin-wise, at, right at thirty-one percent for both quarters. Just a little bit down here in Q1. Um, and as usual, fairly minor a- adjustments. Only two point three million in one-time cost removed. So that's a pretty uh, consistent figure. Gross margins, uh, nice bump up, 48% in Q4, jumped back up to 50% in Q1, uh, you know, which is kind of like where they've stated a long-term goal is. Operating income came in at $44.2 million uh, here in Q1, so, so a nice result. Um, as usual, a, a lean operating, fig, uh, op- operating expense figure, $80.5 million here in Q1. Um, you know, so only 32.4% of revenue, you know, which of the big five here is the, the leanest figure relative to revenue that we've seen, uh, just, just a hair below, uh, where Verano is. Um, and then, you know, one of the standouts as usual, and, you know, I think we'll, an area we'll focus on is operating cash flow. Q4 was 70 million and here in Q1, it was 74.7 million. Uh, a, a good chunk of that is, is definitely, you know, the, and they noticed noted this openly is there's no tax payment in Q1, so the the tax adjusted operating cash flow figure was still a, a healthy 41 million uh, here in Q1. Yeah, and and I mean a standout, right? By far the largest number. You know, you and I have always talked a lot about OCF. It's been the number one thing we've looked at for a long time. Um, but the market for a long time disagreed with us, and now it's gone the other way. And I think, 
you know, given the market that we're in, the environment that we're in, people care a lot about OCF. So optically, the 74 million number, I mean, it's eye popping. Um, it's extremely attractive and impressive. Uh, it actually outshines the the number from the year prior. So they had 55 million of OCF the year prior, basically the same amount of, of taxes uh, uh, payable. Um, but they had some some decent adjustments uh, the year prior. But just to show that you know, the year over year comparison is actually pretty solid. Um, now, to your point, you know, income tax payable, there's there's no um, income tax. Now, why was that not the case for the other companies? Because it's funny, but uh, what was happening was the other companies were catching up on taxes from prior quarters, probably like a year plus ago. Um, so although they weren't paying their Q123 tax, they were paying a much larger number for say Q1 of you know 22, right? And you're seeing the net number there. Um, GTI is the only company that uh, d- doesn't really have a huge <laughs> tax liability, so um, not really an issue. And, and TrueLeave as well, I should mention, but uh, uh, it's a little different for them. Uh, uh, but so that's definitely a positive in, in GTI's favor right now. And uh, you made a good point though. You know, you do have to normalize that that figure, uh, but. Um, there's not really too many adjustments. I mean, it's, it, it, there's a, a accrued liability adjustment. Um, there's a inventory adjustment, accounts payable adjustment. You know, there's also 6 million of share-based comp, which I actually think was kind of high compared to a lot of the other companies. Uh, but overall, you got roughly 40 million bucks of true operational cash flow, right? So even Verano, who is ahead of everyone else, you're still 15 million bucks on ahead of them, Right. And 10 million of that is the delta in interest costs, like we talked about. Um, so there's still 5 million um, if you normalize it. But but overall, Verano netting out like 25 million a quarter, GTI netting out 40 million a quarter. Both very impressive, but obviously the edge goes to GTI here. Yeah. And that, you know, when we speak about consistency like that, you know, call it just over 160 million kind of annualized positive OCF figure is, is roughly what they've done the past uh, two years, 2022 and 2021. So love that, uh, you know, just clearly, you know, that's, that's a fundamental difference between them and others where, you know, you're, you're essentially paying, you know, GTI has been pretty heavy on the CapEx profile for the last three years now. And, you know, for this year as a total, they, they forecasted 160 million, uh, in 2023 capex so you know 65 million was here in q1 that means you know it'll be slightly lower in q2 q3 q4 but mm-hmm. you know still a, a pretty heavy number but um you know they're, they're able to do that and, and self-fund it solely through operational cash flow and you know maintain what is what is still a a lean balance sheet and you know they even said that you know 24 capex should be the time that we're, we're spend comes down uh, quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, they might even arrive to the point where they can, you know, start to pay down their already limited debt. Yeah. So, so if you think about OCF this quarter at 40 times four, it's 160 for the year. Uh, plus we're going to have Maryland coming, right? And GTI is not big in Florida or Arizona. Um, and so this is probably the low point of their OCF. Now, IL is going to start, Illinois is going to start being a problem, I think, are more of a problem as you go forward. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them do better than 160 million of OCF for the year. And uh, you know, they're basically putting that all into capex. There was a small line here, two and a half million bucks on investments. I mean, the the uh, 
the opportunity to invest across the industry in technology or brands or whatever, it's never been better. Um, and, and I say that because capital is so dry, so hard to get your hands on. You have your pick of the litter right now. And even if they want to write a small check, two million bucks, three million bucks, whatever. First of all, they get a lot more than what they used to get. And secondly, the the halo effect of having GTI stamp your investment. I mean, the the investor brand equity behind GTI has never been higher. And I've been very critical in the past of the fact that um, Ben, you know, is very much about giving the Heisman to investors and you know, other than quarterly calls, you really never hear or see of Ben anywhere or GTI anywhere. Um, and I do think that should change. But listen, you can't argue with these results and the fact that they've just kept their head down and executed. Um, it's been a phenomenal outcome. And I think that gives investors a lot of comfort. Now, when things go wrong, like they, you know, fire their entire board, um, then they pay the price for it, right? But clearly something is going very, very right here. The footprint uh, is in a good position, and I think there's a lot to like. Another another item I'd like to point out, you know, I, I was talking about how with Cresco, there's a below-the-line item on finance for limited liability unit holders, and that was like a $12 million outflow for Cresco that people don't really talk about. Well, GTI actually has that line as well. So this was a structure that was common, you know, back when GTI and Cresco, um, I guess, consolidated or went public or whatever. Well, you know the differences with GTI? Um, if you look at it year over year, the distributions to limit liability holders, it was $14 million last year. It was four hundred grand this year. So however they did it, um, that liability, the, the, the tax they're paying out has come way down to being a rounding error now. So it's this kind of stuff that just makes you feel good. It doesn't get discussed a lot, but that's $14 million that's not flowing out of the company this year that was last year. Um, and and that's great, right? That's great to see. So uh, a lot of things going right here on the valuation side: two hundred and thirty-eight million shares fully diluted, trading between seven and eight bucks US, which is probably near all-time lows. Uh, in terms of debt, you've got two hundred and seventy-five of of notes, thirty million of contingent consideration payable. Maybe it gets paid, maybe it doesn't. Who knows? Um, 100 million of short-term liabilities with some credit for cash. So roughly 400 million of debt. Um, all in, you get to an EV between just over 2 bill and uh, 2.3. So let, let's call it between 2 and 2.3. I ran EBITDA between 275 and 325 million. Um, that's because I'm adjusting for the, the share-based comp, which you can argue about. So on the low end, you're... Um, on the low end, you're about seven times EBITDA. On the high end, you're about eight times EBITDA. So you're you're in that seven to eight number. If you shoot the lights out on on um, EBITDA and you hit the three twenty five, you're closer to six and a half times. So you're seven to eight with six and a half being the upside. Look, I think like we talk a lot about is EBITDA the right number, is cash flow the right number? There is no one metric, right? You got to look at it all together. But I think looking at EV to EBITDA and looking at cash flow are probably two of the best metrics. This company has the best combination of these two things right now, uh, along with the footprint and, and Maryland, Ohio, um, uh, Minnesota, uh, and and even like, let's say, you know, as, as an outlier, New York, right? Maybe maybe there is some upside there that we're, we're being too negative on. Uh, this has all of the right things going for it. I think at today's prices, you're doing pretty well. 
it's an attractive price. Um, I think if you get, you know, into the sixes and below in the EBITDA, then you, you do look at, you know, really getting aggressive here on GTI. Yep. Yep. I think that's a perfect synopsis. Uh, just the right mix of everything you want to see. And, you know, I think similar to Verano looking out to this year, they're, you know, perhaps more tuck in acquisitions, but it sounds like for the most part, it's just investing in the existing footprint. And, you know, a lot of that just suggests further consistency ahead. And, uh, you know, that's what we'll continue to look for for the rest of the year. Yeah. In terms of risks and, and some stuff that kind of we don't talk about a lot, I mean, there's a risk for a lot of companies, but um, labor, right? So, so GTI had a strike at a couple of their stores over 420 in Illinois. Uh, definitely hampered sales. This is the one where the Teamsters put up a giant inflatable rat. Um, and then GTI built a wall, you know, to, to kind of block them off so customers wouldn't have to see it. Um, and then after they sort of settled with the Teamsters, uh, they turn around and, and are taking them to federal court over labor violations. Now, is that right? Is it wrong? Who knows? Um, but this is just stuff that companies have to deal with more and more today, right? As, as it kind of feeds into the macro and a shortage of labor um, and stuff like that. So uh, definitely a challenge. I'd also point out that it's a little unclear what's going on with Circle K in Florida. Um, you know, typically stores open pretty quickly in Florida. So the timing that's being taken here suggests to me that there is some kind of dispute between them and um, the OMMU. So I think it's a little unclear if this deal actually comes to fruition or not. Obviously, would love to see it happen. Um, if not, you know, and Florida gets on the ballot, um, then we we uh, have to get uh, creative and look at M&A. So Nick, look, we're at the end here. I'm going to give you the last word as we think about all these companies and going forward for 23. Yeah, Manish, always a pleasure as always. First off, thanks for having me back on. You know, I think what I would say is kind of what, what I always say, just, you know, always be putting in the work to dive deep into these numbers. Cause you know, I think even our review today pointed out why looking at surface level announcements, you know, doesn't do enough and re- really digging in as an investor makes the difference in, in analyzing these companies and finding the real differences between them all. Beautifully said. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, everybody. CIN podcast at gmail.com until next time. Hit it. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.